Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. This is the Daily Blast from the New Republic, produced and presented by the DSR Network. I'm your host, Greg Sargent. Hello, everybody. We're starting the first episode of this podcast off with some news for you. A group of former Republican governors have signed on to a brief arguing to the Supreme Court that Trump should be disqualified from running for president under the 14th Amendment. Those GOP governors include Christine Todd Whitman of New Jersey, Bill Weld of Massachusetts, and Mark Roscoe of Montana. This shows that some former Republican officials, members of Trump's own party, are siding with the Colorado Supreme Court's recent ruling against Trump. These Republicans are arguing to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is hearing this case, that Trump is disqualified from appearing on the state's ballot because he engaged in insurrection under the meaning of the 14th Amendment. Our guest today is one of those Republican governors, Mark Roscoe. He wasn't just governor of Montana. He also served as the chair of the Republican National Committee from 2001 to 2003, meaning he has insights into the Republican Party at the very highest levels of power. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, Greg. It's nice to be here. Can you tell us how you and these other GOP governors came together to do this and why you're doing it? Well, it's um, kind of serendipity in some ways. Um, obviously, when you work with people for a long period of time, and I worked with Bill Weld and Christine um, Todd Whitman for um, as long as they were in office, um, almost, and as long as I was in office, until they moved on to other things like um, the Environmental Protection Agency. So you get to know each other exceptionally well. And this um, particular issue has been a matter of extraordinary and grave concern to me for a long period of time. And I have had questions about the capacity and the character of um, Mr. Trump for uh, every moment that he has been involved since 2016. And as a consequence of talking and sharing thoughts um, here and there, um, and also talking with those who have been primarily responsible for bringing the litigation, uh, I came to the conclusion that I wanted to do as much as I could to possibly support um, the um, the effort to address the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and the constitutional um, parameters that require that um, Mr. Trump um, 
be suspended, be disqualified from being able to be a candidate. Well, your brief is particularly interesting to me because it focuses on the importance of the oath of office. What exactly did you argue about that and why did you choose that angle? Well, the oath of office is, um, uh, if you review the brief or you know already, is um, one of the matters of first consideration by the framers of the Constitution. It was critically important. Oaths were very, very prominent, and they have remained prominent throughout the course of our 235-year history as a democracy. Because in essence, in very simple terms, they establish publicly and otherwise the terms and parameters of the contract between an office holder and the people that that office that uh, that office holder wants to serve so at the end of the day they set the terms and the conditions and they require very simply protect defend preserve the constitution against um enemies foreign and domestic against insurrection against anything that's a violation of the constitution and we just feel so deeply about our sworn obligation and how critically important it is to the continuation and survival of the country that we wanted to set about to address it in a brief to the United States Supreme Court. At the most fundamental level, the 14th Amendment argument is that Trump's insurrection amounted to such an extraordinary violation of the oath of office that he cannot be entrusted to take the oath and abide by it again, right? I mean, let's let's try to really boil this down. Insurrectionists who refuse to accept election outcomes in violation of their oath of office are disqualified from seeking such awesome power in U.S. elections henceforth. Is that the way to think about this? I think that, in a broad stroke, is the way to think about it. But there are a number of different interests and entities and desires that were manifested um, and different weapons of attack upon uh, the provisions that required the transition of power. One of them is, of course, um, assembling all of these people, inciting them to riot. Um, countenancing what was going on for three hours after um, you knew precisely as the chief uh, commander-in-chief and the chief executive of this country, letting it go on when you had a duty to protect and keep people safe and secure. So there are so many different instances of where the Constitution was violated by a person who had extraordinarily broad requirements of responsibility to provide and protect the people of this country. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine a, a more serious violation of the oath of office than that, although one could if one tried. I, I would totally agree. It's um, every everything that ultimately happened is the result of the inspiration in the beginning, the planning, the conspiracy, and not only in, in Washington, D.C., but it occurred around the country. And there was a concert of action by all of these various people that came together. I mean, they didn't show up there by accident. In some instances, their trips were paid for. They were they were inspired by the remarks of um, the former president at, during the time that he was speaking to them out out, out on the uh, elliptical. The um, encouragement to leave and go to the Capitol uh, to fight like hell. I mean, there's just one time after another that there's a demonstrative piece of evidence to suggest that he was going to set about to use whatever means was required in order to be ostensibly preserved as the president of the United States. You put your finger on something important there that I feel often gets lost in this discussion. There's a sort of tendency to create an artificial separation between, on the one hand, the procedural coup that Trump pursued, 
through things like pressuring the Department of Justice to create a fake rationale for contesting the election, to the fake electors scheme and so forth, to the pressure on the vice president to subvert the Constitution on January 6th. There's, there's this weird tendency to seek separation between that on the one hand and on the other, what the mob did. But all throughout, Trump saw the mob as an instrument to accomplish the procedural coup. And to me, that's really the essence of this at, at the most basic level. He incited the mob and summoned it to D.C. for the purpose of carrying out the procedural coup if it failed. Does that, how does that, how does that, how does that sort of factor into your thinking about the oath of office as the way to argue about this? Well, I think you're right. What this is, is one transaction. Look, he, when he found out that he had not received um, sufficient electoral support to be the ultimate um, victor in this campaign, they set out in a way that was broad stroked and was focused upon conspiratorial actions that would somehow be able to attack those who had counted votes, even though to this very moment there's not a scintilla of evidence to support that particular notion. As time went on, they get, they became more and more desperate and reaching for more and more arrows in the quiver. And as a consequence of that um, desperation and effort to, at any price, end up in a position where they could secure um, the opportunity for power not to be transferred, for it to be retained by the former president, they were going to secure and latch onto. So it's almost unimaginable that this kind of uh, desperation and um, this kind of desire to be able to continue on being the president of the United States could reach these epic proportions. Yeah, and, and there's another angle on on your focus of the oath of office that I'd like to bring up, and, and it concerns how opponents of disqualification talk about the topic. They, they constantly talk about the destabilizing potential of not letting millions of voters pick Trump. And look, of course, we should take that seriously, right? Um, that's a real thing. But others have argued, like David French of the New York Times, who's been quite forceful on this, that not disqualifying him could also be deeply destabilizing. And and bear with me here, because I think this is where your argument about the oath comes into force. Trump is publicly vowing to serially, serially violate his oath again if he wins, prosecuting political opponents without cause, persecuting the vermin voters who oppose him on a large scale, possibly purging the deep state in ways that bend or break the law. Shouldn't this threat to violate his oath again in office also be part of the discussion over which outcome would be the more destabilizing one? Absolutely. There's absolutely no question about that. And, and it includes other, um, other efforts uh, to um, promise that he will, in fact, set about to terminate the Constitution or he'll um, take action against um, the uh, chief of staff of the um, armed services or any number of um, different things, as you mentioned and chronicled, at the end of the day, um, each one of those is a promise. And, you know, frankly, the notion that somehow you can ignore the requirements of the oath and the requirements of Section 3 um, suggests that um, some of the remedy that you have or some willingness to ignore are not violations of the Constitution. They, they eviscerate the Constitution when you tolerate that. The, the, what you have to do in this situation, in my judgment, is the first right thing 
and as the consequence of that, address the question of disqualification. And if the evidence is there and two tribunals have found that it is, three actually, including the district court in Colorado, then you end up in a situation where it is inescapable that, in fact, you have to draw a conclusion that um, Donald Trump is ineligible. He's disqualified from being a candidate for president again. And the reason is very simple, because on the one hand, you have the evidence of what he did. On the, on the other hand, you have um, his promises of what he intends to do. And as a consequence of that, how in the name of God could it be anything other than lunacy for us to tolerate and say, well, let's just let that happen. Let that go for now, because it's going to cause some difficulty, some angst and some trouble. Yeah. And, and, and to add to that, what drives me absolutely nuts about the way our discourse talks about these topics is that it's lopsided. It's, it's, it, the focus is always on the consequences of disqualifying. And there's this immense blind spot among a lot of our commentators. They don't consider the, the destabilizing consequences of not disqualifying. And, and he is, like you said, and like I said, threatening to violate his oath serially again. And, and so that gets back to this norm, fundamental argument that someone who violates his oath of office so seriously can't be trusted to, to take that oath again. Well, I think we literally abrogate the Constitution. Um, we see its end in sight. And um, with the ending of the uh, social contract between the people and their country, namely the Constitution, we don't have a democracy anymore. We have no union anymore. And what they are, in essence, are suggesting that they're willing to tolerate is lawlessness, a state of lawlessness. And with the highest um, uh, recognized officer in the United States of America. And as a consequence, um, they don't they don't want the trouble. They don't um, they think that this is an inappropriate way to proceed, that there has to be. I've heard all of these things about, well, you have to have a trial or you have to have a judicial um, a judicial determination or Congress has to be involved. All of those things are specious. They're not even remotely close to accurate. But we've had numerous disqualifications in this country over the course of time, over these last decades. And it's a judgment made by the chief elections officer. It's the burden on the candidate to prove that, in fact, they meet the qualifications. And if they don't, then they're disqualified. And if you don't make certain that this self-executing requirement is, in fact, observed, then you're going to end up with more tumult, more turmoil, absolute chaos in the electoral system. And as a consequence, you end up um, losing your democracy as well. So let's talk about how the Supreme Court might might respond to all of this. I think, uh, to put it mildly, very few people listening to this are, are going to have a lot of confidence that the Supreme Court uh, sides with the Colorado decision. Um, but it, it seems to me there are various ways this, the high court, the highest court, could kind of side with Trump, but maybe dodge some of the core issues in the case. Or, or, or what? What are the? Can you give us a, a brief roadmap? What are the possible? What's the possible range of plausible outcomes here? Well, first of all, I begin with the notion that this is an originalist Supreme Court, um, and what that boils down to is. The Constitution says what it means, and it means what it says. And the language in the 14th Amendment is explicit and clear. It's unmistakable. There's no way that you can misinterpret. There are some issues that surround it that have been alleged to be um, 
interferences in the process of proceeding uh, to a just result. One of those is that there must be some um, there must be some engagement by Congress, which is absolutely wrong and incorrect. There's a there's a second one that says this this has to be an officer of the United States um, of America before it can be applicable the Fourteenth Amendment. Well, there can't be any more prominent officer. And in fact, there's case law that um, points out that in fact um, Donald Trump was an officer at the time that he betrayed uh, the Constitution. Um, thirdly, you could see this um, in terms of whether or not there's adequate due process. In other words, was there the opportunity to call witnesses? Did they get a chance to uh, cross-examine other witnesses? Did they have the chance to present evidence? All of those things. The record, again, is full of information that uh, and and evidence that, in fact, due process was accorded. So you could you could get distracted by some of those arguments. But I honestly believe, and I have confidence in the court, that at the end of the day, they mean what they say when they talk about interpreting the Constitution in the way that the framers intended it being in, interpreted. And so I'm not near the skeptic of the court that um, or of judges or the judicial branch that other people are. And I don't tend to tabulate everything that takes place in terms of whether or not a Republican or a Democrat appointed them. And frankly, if you take a look at the number of judges appointed by Trump, and the number of decisions made by those judges over the course of time adverse to Mr. Trump, I think the score would be um, unbelievably um, to the um, side of the judiciary exercising judgment that is full of integrity. So um, my hope is and my belief is, and I have no doubt that um, if they really are originalists, that they are going to interpret the 14th Amendment as it has been throughout all these decades. Um, literally, as it was intended. And if they do that, Donald Trump is going to be disqualified from running for president again. Well, you have, let's say, more confidence in their consistency than I do. Um, but it's good to hear it. Um, all right, let me ask you this. I want to talk about your your time, or at least your experience, and as, as the chair of the Republican National Committee. Uh, there, you've probably seen that there are signs that the GOP donor class is warming to Trump, kind of making their peace with him, right? You've traveled a lot among these types of donor elites. What, what's your sense of the hard nuts and bolts calculation they are making? And, and feel free to really be candid on this. I think they're looking for leadership um, and that they are capable of being persuaded um, in ways that are much more uh, noble and constructive than what we've seen um, over these la over this last decade, um, there has been no leadership. I think that most of the people who are involved in party politics on both sides of the aisle, but especially the Republicans in the last decade, um, are are somehow held together. The adhesive that holds them together is fear of losing. And I suspect that that's probably fear of losing the office they hold. I'd have to tell you that even though um, I was in the system in politics for a long, long time, it is remarkably different. It is astonishingly different um, since about 2006 than it was during my time involved in, in the busy um, life of political activity in this country. Um, the the, um, the willingness to compromise, the lack of ability to stand up, the absence of courage, 
the inability to, from a bipartisan perspective, find solutions um, for the people that you live with, the lack of focus upon the public good, which is really what the Constitution commands each one of us as an office holder to do, um, they simply have lost their way. And um, that's why I, I, it's just disappointing, it's disheartening. I'm mystified how they can continue to adhere to a candidate who has so little character and so little capacity and so little intellectual curiosity and so many so little commitment to the people that he claims to want to serve and still without standing up and bringing objections so it's it's a matter of grave disappointment where will the people that fund campaigns go which is another whole question about reforming that system um we don't have time for that i think with proper leadership and uh, if you have people of character and of values and reflecting, you know, the values of the Constitution, that um, these people can be expected. I mean, create the expectation that you observe the rules as they ought to be as a leader. We're not doing that in this country. Well, it's it's certainly striking how lonely people like Liz Cheney were. Let me offer a very cynical interpretation of what some of these Republican elites are doing and see what you think of it, if it's okay. So Trump, uh, one of his first, one of his only accomplishments, if that's the right word for it, was to pass, was to sign an enormous tax cut for the wealthy in corporations. And so there's one take on all this, which goes like this. These donor elites, they basically would rather, I think, I don't doubt that they would rather have someone like Nikki Haley, right? And I don't doubt that they're genuinely troubled by Trump in some important way. Um, but it, it seems pretty clear to me that they say to themselves, all right, well, look, Trump is going to win the nomination and he will kind of keep going with the types of um, uh, pro-plutocratic policies that we want. Uh, and, you know, he, he made a huge mess last time, but he didn't really destroy the country, right? He couldn't get that far. He was reined in. They tell themselves, all right, it's worth it. It's better, better than Biden, better than Biden's climate agenda, right? Is that, is that a fair way to think about it, that that's the calculation they're making? I, th I think that is, um, yeah. The, um, you know, I, I don't know the thinking of each individual, but I, I am, as I mentioned, mystified by the fact that when I talk to people uh, typically that have been involved in politics, who are presently involved in politics, and, you know, even though I've been um, essentially disenfranchised from being a Republican in Montana, I still have a lot of people who are candidates, who serve presently, who want to talk to me and um, want to think about and complain about the state of the political affairs in the country. Um, I talk to funders, to people who are involved in companies and um, who typically are inclined to make uh, contributions. And they too have the same um, concerns and they voice them and they're discontented with what it is that we have. But, but Greg, at the end of the day, um, I have a very hard time finding any allies. And um, it's just as with this project, with the Christie and, and uh, Bill Weld and I, we, um, we thought we would subscribe a lot of people to this particular notion. And frankly, they're, they're disinclined for a variety of different reasons. And I, I'm con convinced that, first of all, they do not want to be disenfranchised by the party. 
Um, they do not want to um, in any way affect what it is that happens to them in the future. And they don't want any unnecessary baggage. They think somebody else is going to take care of this rather than them. And uh, I think those are the moving forces here that, and everybody in business afraid to make a mistake by making a contribution to somebody that's not approved. Um, not that they want to make a contribution in the first place. Typically, they don't. But at the end of the day, yeah, this is this is fear and intimidation. And it's a distortion of what it is that your responsibilities as a citizen are. Um, and especially those who are leaders in communities. It's not just people in politics who are not standing up and being counted. It's people that we live with and love and care about. And um, as a consequence, um, if we don't all get engaged in this in a meaningful way, we're going to lose our way. Well, I do think uh, fear and intimidation is certainly a big part of it. I, I think, if if I'm not mistaken, Trump openly and explicitly threatened uh, retribution against those who side with Nikki Haley, didn't he? Um, well, Just that's recently. what I heard. That's what I um, heard and read about and saw the quotes of. And, you know, uh, frankly, um, there's just there's not one qualifying characteristic uh, for Donald Trump. And as a consequence of that, it um, it just mystifies me. I think his ability to appeal to the small side of our nature um, to try and make us feel better about ourselves because we don't. Um, uh, probably live up to the expectation of what it is we ought to uh, do in reference to a lot of different issues. Um, excuses people in some instances, others um, tolerate it because they don't want to make trouble. Others don't want to argue with everybody from their family to their friends. But at the end of the day, if you care about the country, and you um, first noticed this in 2018 when you wrote your book, if we don't do something to manifest each one of us, the values infused into our Constitution and upon which a free people depend for existence and survival in an organized society, we we are in for a lot of trouble and uh, perhaps a an abolition or an, or an abrogation of the Constitution and ultimately our way of life. Well, thank you for being aware of that book. Uh, I don't know how many people are, but I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> let me. It's a, um, it's a great let, book. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Well, let me ask you a, a question that that might strike you as a bit jarring, but I think will be on the minds of, of particularly of liberal listeners. And this is sort of about the broad sweep of Republican politics in, I don't know, the last couple of decades, right? It's sometimes said that the rise of Trump was fueled in part by the failures of the Republican Party, particularly during the Bush years, uh, that the, the real base of the GOP is much more restrictionist on immigration, much less enamored of the wealthy donor class, et cetera, et cetera. It's also said that Bush's excesses in the war on terror kind of preceded and in a sense created fertile ground for Trump's abuses of power. I wanted to ask you whether you thought that was what sort of blame does the Republican Party institutionally bear for what's happened to the Republican base? Well, you know, the um, hindsight is always twenty twenty, as we um, <laughs> as we both know. And you know, I do, in fact, think there were some mistakes made over the course of time, and um, I, I would offer them up just in constructively. But um, I can see that there is some concern about um, people not wanting to leave the shores of this country and get engaged in democracy actions around the rest of the planet. 
I understand that that may appear to be a safe um, strategy. My view is contrary, that um, when we, we ought to be pursuing uh, democracy every place we can. Are there instances where we have gone too far? Absolutely. Um, and that we risked our own well-being financially and otherwise as a result of of, of going too far? Or um, have we been unavailable in some instances? And there's no secret formula. I mean, there's one formula to deal with the, the Ukraine, uh, another formula that deals with um, the, all the misery and the inhumanity in Gaza. Um, there's a um, third set of uh, imperatives in the Middle East. It's hard to know at th that moment in time precisely what uh, was going on. But I think the attitude and the movement right of the Republican Party, and there are a lot of moving forces, one of which is Christian nationalism that has become very, very prominent. And um, that is scary in its own right because it um, it's virtually intolerant in many different respects. And the um, the ability for us to approve or or at least not object to what happened in the 90s with the arrival of the Republicans for the first time in the House in 40 years and the change in attitude, the change in currency, the change in civility that took place. All of these things are cumulative. Should we have seen them? I wish we would have seen all of them and addressed them at the time. But we're human beings. We make mistakes. But um, were there mistakes made by the Republicans over the course of the last um, uh, two decades, uh, three decades? Unquestionably, yes. Well, you've certainly raised a whole bunch of other questions that maybe we can pick up when, uh, if and when you come back on the show. Uh, let me ask you one final question. You were a longtime ally of George W. Bush. Do you expect him to say something about the current election? I, I don't mean that he would endorse Biden the way you have, correct? But um, do you expect him to signal in some sense uh, dismay and, and dissatisfaction and fear of, of a second Trump term? Uh, this is something that I think a lot of uh, insiders do expect in some at some point. I, I wonder if you think that's going to happen. I don't know. Um, see, now this is one of those moments I, that you and I have been trying to describe where you know that there's something more to be said than I don't know. And um, what I would say is I would hope he would. I would um, offer a little prayer that he would. I would encourage him that he would. I would encourage Barack Obama to do the same um, for exactly the same reasons. They know the difference in how things ought to be and how they are. And so do the leaders of Congress. I've known a lot of those people for a long time. Mitch McConnell, John Thune, um, all of the Rob Portmans of the world, people on the other side of the aisle. They know in their heart what's right here. and. They're not standing up to defend it. And as a consequence of that, the country is suffering. And uh, they set the example. So instead of filing briefs, you ought to find the right way to go and uh, decide to go. Well, thank you so much, sir. I should tell listeners that your brief will be filed to the Supreme Court on today, on Tuesday. Uh, and it will be from three Republican governors. Uh, Mark Roscoe, who we've been interviewing here, Christine Todd Whitman, and Bill Weld. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a privilege. Thanks, Greg. 
You've been listening to The Daily Blast with me, your host, Greg Sargent. The Daily Blast is a New Republic podcast and is produced by Riley Fessler and the DSR Network. 